Chris Romeo, CEO of Kerr Ventures. Okay, we're talking at the RSA conference. Chris, just yesterday, you gave your State of AppSec Security presentation. Do you want to enlighten our listeners, viewers, with what is the State of AppSec Security? Sure, yeah, it's definitely, there's a lot of moving pieces to the State of AppSec, but what I shared in this talk, first of all, starting out thinking about, okay, we have all these different programming languages, we have all these different frameworks, we have containerization, we have orchestration, we have DevOps and building software at a high rate of speed. And really one of the primary points I wanted to make there is all these things are in their security infancy. AppSec started 20 years ago. Like we can draw back to OWASP beginning and AppSec starting to become a thing, but we're still in our infancy when it comes to all of these different things. And yes, there are a lot of best practices that I shared from people, process, tools, and governance. The standard kind of approach is the way that I think about it, but there, there is a lot more room to go. And I really think we're approaching the year of the application. I don't know if it's 2023, I don't know if it's 2024, but we're, we're quickly approaching where security at all, all of our other levels has, start, has gotten a lot of focus, it's gotten a lot of investment, it's got, there's lots of tooling that brings that together. But really the application still being in its infancy, the year of the application's coming, I don't know if it's 23, 24, maybe it's 25, but the year of the application is on the way. It's, in some ways, it's challenging because you're trying to hit a moving target, right? Application development changes radically, has changed radically, continues to evolve. Deployment, same thing. Shift to microservices and so on. What are some of the challenges that exist today around securing applications that maybe didn't exist 10 years ago? The OWASP top 10 is something that I always come back to Maybe some of it existed 10 years ago, but some of those pieces are new. We've seen some new things make its way to the top of the list. Injection is no longer the number one biggest AppSec problem that we have. It's broken authorization. It's not being able to determine who can access what and having that be very solid. But when you think about what we've seen in the pipelines, attackers coming after the pipelines now, it leads me back to another OWASP project, the top 10 CICD controls that need to be considered and challenges. And so th those are the types of things that when we're thinking about the modern application, these are the places we have to excel. So on the positive side, you say it could be the year of the application, do you think the, the big shift or change is just the amount of attention and resources this problem is getting or has something else changed? I think we've invested heavily in so many other places, but the application has been the place that hasn't gotten the attention. And so a perfect example, think about Zero Trust. Zero Trust considers policy-based access controls and segmentation and all of these things. Then you ask, well, what about the application? Most Zero Trust architectures say, well, we didn't really think about the application. We didn't even really play it into our picture. We have this solid network approach for boundaryless networks and all these other things, but they almost forgot about the application. So there's an example of we need to focus and we need to keep pushing towards bringing the application in line with everything else. One of the sessions you did this year at RSA is a sort of red team, blue team, steel cage match. <laughs> it's Chatham House rules. You don't talk about what happens in the room, but at a high level, what can you tell us? What we did with this experience is we set teams across eight tables and teams were going head to head against each other and they're also playing to be the highest score in the room. And so we gave each team a separate design 
and we told them, hey, come up with the 10 best threats you can create based on those. And then after 25 minutes, we swapped them. So team one got team two's list of threats and then vice versa, across the room, everybody swapped. And then they had to mitigate a set of threats that somebody else had created against a different document. And we scored this thing in real time as we were going. And the feedback in the room was just phenomenal. People loved the ability to put their hands on and actually participate in this. Because a lot of times with threat modeling, I can lecture about it for 40 hours. And I'll love it. Like, I'll love every minute of it. But at the end of that time, the people won't be able to threat model. They'll be like, I listened to this guy talk for a long time. And so threat modeling is about putting things into action. And that's what we did there. And it's a skill, and but you learn by doing. You can't. You can only learn a little bit of it by listening to other people. You have to get your hands dirty, and that's what we were able to create that experience, and people just loved it. They were raving coming out of the room. So what were some of the models that they were, they were given? So we took a, just a, we built a design for an e-commerce application, and one of the designs was the API gateway and further back to microservices, databases, third-party processors, and then the other side of it was the mobile app. And so it was, and, and we didn't design this thing with security in mind. We left a few things out to make it more interesting, but we tried to have a realistic architecture that people could find at in their businesses today. And so we wanted to, that was important though, just to have something real versus just making up something that's not really applicable. They'll, these folks will be able to take Back, go back to work and see things now in their architectures and go, wait, I thought about this already. I did an exercise where we pinpointed these types of problems. So one of the big buzzwords on the show floor at RSA and just in general in the industry is software bills of material that is coming directly from guidance from the federal government and private sector as well. You actually wrote a really interesting piece for reversinglabs.com on sort of SBOM skepticism, I guess is one way to look at it. Yep. Things to think about. Give us your take on software bills of material, their uses and limitations. Yeah, so I'm perhaps gonna be painted as a S-bomb pundit, and I guess that's okay. I've reached a point in my career where I can be a pundit, it's okay, I can live with it. But when I think about SBOM, so I certainly, I understand the value proposition. Like, I want to know what is included the software that I'm using, whether that's SaaS, whether that is something that's being used on-prem, I mean, it doesn't matter. I want to know what the component, what the ingredients list is. So I don't have any problem with that. I want that capability myself. The challenge I have with SBOM is I think everybody's jumping into the deep end of the pool and saying, we have to do this, we have to create SBOMs for everything on Earth, but nobody's thought about how to actually manage those things. What are you going to do if, if and, and nobody's even considered at the speed of DevOps, it's one thing for me to give you one SBOM a month. What if I release 50 to 100 times a day? Am I giving you 100? You take, you, are you ready to accept 100 SBOMs a day, process them, and do some meaningful thing out of it? And so that's why I'm pushing back against this idea of just hitting the gas pedal and going all in with SBOM. And I got lots of friends that are doing very positive things. Steve Spring at the Cyclone DX, for example. They're doing under OWASP's kind of tutelage there. They're doing great things. But what, I, my, what I'm trying to say is let's make sure we're getting value out of this. So I don't want to make another compliance activity. I've been in security for 25 years at this point. I've seen a lot of check the box and I've become an anti-compliance person because if I'm gonna make the investment in something, I wanna be able to get the value. There should be a return on it. Don't just do something because we wanna sell a, you can do the same things that are required and make your product more secure. And if you do that, so that, that's really my overall challenge with SBOM is let's get value out of it for the investment, for the time and money and everything that's gonna go into it. If we can do that, I'll become a fan. I'll wear an SBOM t-shirt. Hashtag SBOM, I'll wear it around Arson. <laughs> I'll wear it next year. We gotta move forward as an industry a little bit here. Yeah, there's been an SBOM t-shirt. 
so the, you know, folks who advocate SBOM say, listen, this is think about the food supply chain, right? Think about how the sausage is made, literally, yeah. right? Like you need to know what ingredients are in the sausage, and then beyond that, yes, you need to have some standards around how it's manufactured and produced, and sanitary conditions, and so on. That's all we're looking for. We just need to know what's in this stuff, and from that, we can start down the long road of getting it so that the product that comes out is safe, secure, reliable. So they look at it that way, but when you say we need to make sure that we get this is productive, this is beneficial for us, what do you have in mind? What type of processes? We have to we have to reach the point where we have technology that can ingest all of these S bombs and truly provide actionable outcomes from it. Whether that is feeding back into the vendor chains to get things updated, whether it's doing something inside of an enterprise, causing them to do something to make an upgrade or something like that. It's like, I feel like that's the piece that's missing. We don't have that actionable glue that can make S-bombs really beneficial. And when you think about, you use the food label example, who's the primary consumer of the food label? People. We look at the thing and we can understand it. We don't get, what if your ketchup bottle sent you 500 labels a day? To, to peel off and stick on your bottle because they were changing the components that went. Like, I get that trying to draw that conclusion, but it's the, the illustration starts to break down when you think of the 500 labels being stuck on the ketchup bottle. And because the thing, ketchup doesn't change that much. Ketchup stays the same for probably hundreds of years, probably we've been making ketchup the same way. And to, to mix that metaphor almost oversimplifies the value prop. And once again, I want to see these things provide value. Like I'm not just, I'm not sitting here saying, I think they're bad and we should never do them. I'm saying good, we should gain the value out of them versus going down this road and causing enterprises to have to spend millions of dollars to generate these things that are never going to be used by anybody for the next couple of years. They just want to sell. Oh, I want to sell to the federal government, so I'm going to generate all these S-bombs. I'm going to do what they say I have to do, but there's not going to be any value coming out of it. So then they're just balancing their business and saying we can spend five million on S-bombs to sell 50 million of product. Right. That's a compliance activity. Like right. why, why spend five million? Why not spend five million to make the product more secure? What in your mind would be a good application of either S-bomb as they exist or the idea of an S-bomb? How could it be optimally useful at this point? I think an S-bomb that could encompass everything about a given SaaS service, for example. I think that starts to become even more interesting to me because it's more than just the individual components or libraries and things that are plugging into a web application. It's now a rundown of what AWS services are included in this thing. Give me a holistic view of everything that's included within this. And, but then I've got to have a way to act, to, to perform, to, to act on it though. And that's the part that I feel like we're still missing in our industry is there's not an easy way to act on these things at the speed that we're developing software. Yeah, the consumers of software, right, are enterprises, let's say, are, don't really have the systems processes built up to be able to ingest, maybe ingest S-bombs yep. and then figure out how to respond. Let's say there's a vulnerable component, figure out how to respond to that. So they need their, that capability needs to develop. Do you feel like there's enough guidance being given to organizations right now on how they might develop that capability? No, I haven't seen I haven't seen anything. OWASP has a project called Dependency Tracker, for example, and it's another Steve Springett project. It ingests S bombs and then gives you an enterprise view of it. 
now. It's an open source project. I don't know how many enterprises are willing to roll that out now as their entire, into their software supply chain security. So I think there's some room for vendors to step up in this space to give us, to give us more of these capabilities to make these things actionable. What, in your mind, uh, a lot of people feel like, listen, just saying need to get developers to develop more secure code is sort of a boil the ocean solution. We're not going to do that. There aren't many incentives, actually, within organizations to emphasize security at the expense of deliverability and features. So what is, in your mind, the solution here for application, application developers, software publishers, to balance the demands they have to get code delivered, but also address some of these underlying... Yeah, I would disagree a bit with the thought about developers can't do security, they can't keep up with it. I think we've, in our industry, we've a lot of people have said that over and over again, so people are starting to believe it. I've seen the opposite happen. And when you think about developers in general want to create the best possible thing. They're creative people that write code to, to perform some function. They don't want to create insecure versions of what they do. If they had the choice to learn about security and apply that to what they do, and now they know security and they could choose to be secure or insecure, they're not, no, developers are, they want to build great stuff. That's what makes them great developers. And so I, I don't see this world where we can't, the developers can't help us, they can't get to where they need to do. Now, are they the only answer? No. Once again, coming back to what I started talking about, people, process, tools, governance. Like, that's what you need in an AppSec program. The people need, the developers need knowledge, experience, they need to be taught because we know they're not learning in the university system. Nobody's teaching secure coding. But we can do that inside the company. We can pair that with a solid security process, secure development lifecycle. We add tools such as reversing labs and other tools that exist in the market to help put together and check the code and ensure we're not having these software supply chain issues. And then governance is looking across an entire fleet of applications and ensuring we've got metrics that are letting us see that our program is inching up and maturing and getting better over time. Because this is not something that we can do in, you're not going to do this in a quarter. You're not going to say, oh, we're going we're gonna to push security to our developers in one quarter from now, we're going to, no. This is a multi-year, slow incremental improvements over time as we go. And, but you can turn this ship. I mean, I did it at Cisco. I helped to do this at Cisco. Cisco, when I was there, 25,000 engineers, this is the battleship. This is trying to turn the battleship, is what we were doing. We turned it little tiny bit of a degree <laughs> every day for five years. And when we got five years into the future, we looked and we said, oh, we've made a bit of a left turn to people thinking more about security. So it's possible, it can be done at scale, just don't think it's gonna happen overnight. So the 3CX hack was the incident that happened before this conference. Uh, obviously it overshadows everything going on here. Software supply chain hack, actually maybe a second order software supply chain hack, as yep. it turns out. What lessons do you take from that incident? What lessons are there out there for companies like 3CX that are developing software, selling it into enterprise? What do they have to learn? I think the biggest lesson I would like to see everybody take away in the software supply chain right now is in the world of transitive dependencies. Just the vulnerabilities that exist. It's not even our first line dependencies that are really being, that, that are drawing in all these challenges. It's the fact that like, you think about a Node.js application. You can create a Node.js application, add five packages, run an update, and all of a sudden there's 278 packages that your project is using, that your simple application is using. And so I think that what we really need to get a handle on here is this transitive dependency problem. 
having the right tooling. And I think there's a future, and this is one of the things I talked about in my State of the Union of Application Security, like here's my ultimate dream for software security. Think about what Let's Encrypt did to the world of browsers, of web server certificates. When's the last time anybody worried about a web server certificate? I get some people probably still buy them from some vendor, but when you think about what Let's Encrypt has done for the general marketplace, like we don't worry about browser to server TLS, HTTPS connections anymore, because Let's Encrypt just took that out of, they took the problem almost away from us, made it easy to refresh those certificates automatically every 45 or 90 days or whatever. That's what we need for software supply chain. And I get that's only going to solve part of the problem, but being able to point back and say, this project was signed at build time by this particular developer or group, according to something they're listing in GitHub, for example, having that level of provenance, that doesn't prevent me from somebody injecting code and messing with the development team and trying to sneak code in, but it does let me in my build pipeline at least have the state of mind to say, this is a project that was, or a package that was built by that team because it's signed and there's a root of trust all the way back to the top. I think that's more than half the battle for what we need to do. I don't know how to, do, I'm not the guy to do it, but I'm the guy that's going to sit here and trumpet the fact. I want to encourage other people though, if we could get to that level of not having to worry, like a package, someone's creating a package they could just plug into something like Let's Encrypt for software packages and have all the tooling to do the signing and everything. Because let's face it, that's not easy. I mean, crypto's hard for a reason. Like I go to, if I go to the crypto sessions here, half at RSA, half the time I'm like, I don't know what these people, I consider myself to be mildly educated and intelligent. And I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about qubits and quantum and all these other things. I'm like, I don't understand it. And so we know crypto's hard. So why make it difficult for those people that are just trying to create open source packages and because they want to make the world a better place, give them the tooling that they need to help all of us in the software supply chain.